Praise the Lord. This morning, Psalm 40 is indeed our text. But as your Bible, as I trust, is open to Psalm 40, I would encourage you also to keep one other bookmark in place, and that would be Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, as we've learned recently on our communion sermon series, references the Old Testament quite a bit. And this psalm is no exception among those references. In Hebrews chapter 1, last week's message brought to our attention at least three psalms. Psalm 102, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, where we find the author of this book writing in the New Covenant and calling as witness to the claims he makes of Christ, the testimony of God the Father speaking of God the Son in the language of the Psalms. This whole interactive way that the Bible reveals Jesus Christ all the way through in some ways incremental degrees and in some ways more powerfully when we see the connections in light of Christ and His appearance and revelation when He walked this earth is absolutely staggering. There is nothing that can compare to the literary genius of the Holy Word of God. And I'm sure if you've done any serious or in-depth study of your own in these passages or any other for that matter, you've probably found what I've found that every raw as you turn it over, you find there buried treasures beyond compare. Psalm 40 is no exception in this regard because right smack dab in the center, at the fulcrum, at the center of gravity, if you will, we find a messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ our Lord in verse 6. When the psalmist David writes, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. There we find the testimony of Jesus Christ. The perfect fulfillment and final sacrifice and offering. Propitiation for our sins. Thus the message of Christ's atonement rings with clarity and beauty from the old covenant scriptures as well as the new. And we find more often than not that they are bound together as authors in Hebrews, for instance, tie them to their own declaration of Christ in His finished work. The title of this morning's message is Atonement Time Machine. Atonement Time Machine. That title is meant to reflect that the messages of the atonement, the redemptive theme and the epic of Scripture, if you will, is one that transcends time. Here, it doesn't make any sense in the natural realm that David would understand the depth and profundity of what he writes. Unless the Holy Spirit had brought him through the sovereign work of his speaking to him and inspiring these words into a time machine, if you will, and flashed him forward to the coming Messiah and what he would be and represent and then bring that message back in the form of this glorious song, to the throngs, the congregation that would gather, as we find in verse 9, for instance, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. What is that gathered throng? Well, it certainly is a gathered assembly of some sort, perhaps much larger than what we have here. It could have been the whole of the nation of Israel at a coronation event, or at the celebration of a great victory in battle. It might have been temple worship, But certainly we know what was echoed and proclaimed at this great meeting. 
It was the truth that there was a coming Messiah who would atone sufficiently and finally for sins. And that the whole worship order that those at this time were engaged in had purpose and meaning and had its foundation in Jesus Christ. David's writing, David as the psalmist, the great gifted magistrate musician, David's writing gloriously, magnificently, and miraculously transcends his own experience. I've mentioned a number of times, I'll mention again this morning, you cannot understand many of David's psalms unless you understand that he is writing as, he is writing as the lineage of Christ. He is speaking to circumstances in his immediate environment and experience, but he is also speaking by the Spirit's inspiration beyond. He is speaking for his own lineage, and Psalm 40 is no exception in that regard. Magnificently and miraculously, this psalm transcends David's own experience. And as we listen to the epic themes of redemption soaring high above the temporal constraints of this life, we find that this beautiful piece of music was composed first in heaven and then echoed through the lyrics of Israel's typological king. That means that David was a type of Christ. The author of Hebrews recognized the prophetic weight of Psalm 40 in Hebrews chapter 10, as I mentioned before. In this new covenant, New Testament confirmation of David's messianic foreknowledge is striking in its timelessness. Perhaps one point to bring to bear, to, to bring perspective to this is perhaps we can compare this moment to John the Baptist. That is to say, long before John the Baptist identified Christ in the flesh, when he pointed to this man and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Long before that moment of redemptive history, we have this moment here in the song of David. David had identified Christ in song, announcing as though returning from time travel into the future and bringing the message back to the congregation, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so this morning, may we behold the Lamb of God in this ancient hymn. A heading for three points for you this morning. The loveliness of salvation underscored in multiple tenses. Tenses meaning past tense. Prophetic perfect tense, which is a unique tense. And I'll explain that. It's not original to me, but it's an original idea to Scripture. And then finally, present tense. The loveliness of salvation is underscored in Psalm 40. As you're looking at the psalm before you turn towards the end, as David concludes his beautiful ode of worship and praise to Almighty God and His incarnate Son, in 16 we read, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And so at verse 16, we find in context that the first 15 verses have been an exposition of the loveliness of our salvation. David is issuing a call to worship to all who can relate to that truth and that fact. May all those who love your salvation, say continually, great is the Lord. How do we obey this great commandment, this call to worship? 
how would we follow this call from David's lips and the Holy Spirit's using him as a vessel to say continually, great is the Lord? Well, one example would be to sing this song to him, certainly to meditate and to commit it <coughs> as a text to use in prayer. And also, as we've already done this morning, to say to the Lord, great are you in our worship in the gathered assembly. And so here we are, a little bit further, having entered the time machine of God's purposes, if you will, and I hope in the same spirit that Psalm 40 declares. So let us consider, indeed, the loveliness of salvation underscored in multiple tenses. This Psalm chapter 40 could be divided into three sections according to tense or time. First of all, past tense. David praises the Lord for what he has done in the past. You'll notice the past tense immediately in the second word. I waited patiently for the Lord. And then again in the next phrase, he inclined to me and heard my cry. There's a shift in verse 6. And this is a little different tense indeed as the writer of Hebrews draws our attention to its messianic prophecy. Verse 6, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Here David is speaking, not just in the past tense, that his own ears have been opened, but he's speaking in a future tense as well. But not just a future tense that hasn't occurred yet, but indeed a prophetic perfect tense, if you will. A word I grabbed from another preacher, Alistair Begg, who described the way the authors speak, particularly the prophets in the Old Testament, as to an event in the future in the past tense. And we'll explore that a little bit deeper when we get to point number two. And then finally, there's a shift to present tense in verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. And David in this section is asking for deliverance in his present situation. He says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. In verse 13 and following. So first of all, let's consider in some detail the loveliness of salvation underscored in the past tense. And here David gives his testimony of his own resurrection from depravity. Reading again Psalm 40, 1-5. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. Verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. First of all, I would draw our attention to the progress of salvation, if you will. There is step by step an incremental activity that the Holy Spirit has wrought in the life of David to draw him to himself. Here we see that salvation begins by the sovereign purposes of God. While David waits helpless, yet patient for the Lord, we find that it was not David who inclined himself to God, but instead in verse 1, God inclined to him 
and heard his cry. The inclining of the Lord in favor to his servant is the moment by which the process of redemption and resurrection from the depravity of David's condition, it is the moment to begin. Incline to me, incline, the Lord inclined to me and heard my cry. Why is David crying? Why is he in such anguish? Well, we find his situation akin in the following metaphors to being trapped, bogged down, unable to help himself. And thus in verse 2, we move from God inclining himself to David to a drawing up from the pit of destruction. He drew me up, verse 2, from the pit of destruction and then out of the miry bog. So follow me with these uh, phrases which include prepositions and activity of the divine interaction of a holy God who reaches down in his condescension to a man caught in the misery and mire of his own iniquity and sin and circumstance. And first, what does he do? He inclines himself to David. Then he draws him up from the pit. He's drawing him out of the miry bog. And then he's setting his feet upon a rock. Then he's making his steps secure. That's verses 1 and 2. But it goes on, verse 3. Next, God puts a new song in David's mouth. A song of praise to our God. And then at this point, we see that David begins to emanate his testimony through the things that God has called him to do. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And then he goes on, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them that they are more than can be told. So first of all, upon David's waiting, the Lord inclines himself to him. There is an irresistible grace, a drawing him up of the miry clay of his own condition. It draws him out of that place of depravity. It sets his feet upon the rock. It makes his step secure. And the work and activity of God puts a new song in his mouth. And as the Lord continues to work through David's life, now having established him in his place of influence and calling, perhaps this is the moment that David is describing when he assumes the throne of Israel, where the anointing takes fruition in time and he is there serving God's people. And now at this point, his songs and his leadership and his rule have more influence than ever. And at this time, many, by God's grace through the work he's done sovereignly in David, see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We have multiplied, David also says, you have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us, and I will proclaim is his vow to the Lord. So after David is set on his throne, after he's placed in that position of influence, after his songs have been sung by the throngs and by the congregations, lifting up to the Lord, glory do his name, inspired by one who is called to rally the people for the glory of God, we find that the work of the Lord continues by a multiplicity of His interaction in His life. And so the wondrous deeds that the Lord works on His servants' behalf are too many to number. And they exceed His ability to write. And you wonder why the book of Psalms is as long as it is. It's because the wondrous deeds and thoughts towards David that He knew the Lord had for him 
would fill song after song, hymnal after hymnal. And when we're in this place of recognizing the sovereign grace and power and interaction of our God, what is there to do but proclaim and tell of them? When we have been so influenced by the work of God and recognize it as such, what are we to do? We are to, with David in verse 5, proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. (coughs) Again, this is speaking in the past tense, resurrection from depravity. Notice also not just this salvation progression, the work of Christ progressing in His Son and servant, but notice also the salvation imagery I mentioned briefly, but let's consider a little more at length what the author means by the pit of destruction and the miry bog in verse 2. David certainly found himself in a place where the more activity and the more work and the more striving after escape from his condition would only sink him deeper into the quagmire of his circumstances. Imagine, if you will, a pit so deep that the top looks just like uh, no bigger than a small window. The sides could not be scaled even if you had you know, superior climbing ability without a rope or some help from the top. And the bottom of this pit, because it is so low in the ground and the rains are frequent and routine in this area, has churned up the bottom to be something like a quagmire, a loosely connected sand. And so in this quicksand and muck, if you strive to work your way up the sides of the pit, it only works you deeper and deeper. And the more you squirm, the more you move, and the more you work, the more you sink into the bog of your own depravity. And this is a picture of us in our sin. Before we come to Christ, we are not of those who can say with any just justification, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. Only someone who competes with the glory of God and sets himself up as an idol says something like that or implies something like that. A true testimony of salvation is one who has met the bitter end of his own strivings and recognizes the pit walls are so high and the light is so distant and the miry clay is so difficult to negotiate that all my strivings only deepen my position of despair. And only in Christ is my freedom and hope. You think of pits in Scripture. Joseph was cast in one. Jeremiah was cast in one. You have the Daniel was cast into the lion's den. These were men of God who were cast in their circumstances into a position of helplessness. And in every case, they were dependent on the sovereignty of God to help them, to pull them from those areas or from, from that physical condition of utter despair. And so it is David is using this kind of imagery to describe the situation in his own soul. The more we struggle, the more we sink. Yet what has happened here? Well, there's a second imagery, not just one of a pit, but also there's this metaphor of a rock. And this is akin to salvation as it's described throughout all of Scripture. It says in verse 2, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. One of the trivia questions that now gets answered correctly in our family devotions because we've talked about it so much is, who is the first one to call God a rock? And it was Moses in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 32, if I'm not mistaken, Moses writes his own song of praise to the Lord. And in that song, he introduces the identity of God who has fathered, nurtured, cared for, established, been the foundation under them of this transient, wayward, slave people. 
He tells them that God has been your rock. There is no foundation, naturally speaking, in the wilderness. There's just moving, setting up camp to another. So what established this people? What gave them security? What gave them their point of reference? It was God and God alone. He was the rock of their salvation. It was a wilderness, a desolate desert place in many places. So what provided for them food in the wilderness? Well, again, it came from the rock from which water sprung forth to give the famished and the thirsty sustenance and drink. And manna was given from heaven. Later in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe, Paul identifies the rock in the wilderness as Christ. So when the psalmist employs this imagery, it's no mean metaphor. It's something that tells us that there's a firmness, a basis, a foundation, an established, finished, and final work of Christ underneath the feet of the author of this psalm. Not only does God pull us out of the despair of our own miry circumstances, but He sets us on our chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Past tense, resurrection from depravity. We see salvation's progression. We see this imagery of salvation. There's the pit of destruction. My feet are set upon a rock, but there's also an idea, another symbol in the uh, Scriptures that David brings out in Verse 3, he, that is the Lord, in his rescuing act of David, in his plight, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. He put a new song in my mouth. This idea of new song is also one that's unique to Scripture. There was a worthy anthem that was written and raised in worship to the Lord because of the redemptive nature of the particular occasion. Remember as the Israelites in the Exodus journey crossed the Red Sea? Before that act of deliverance, that sovereign and miraculous intervention that was so obvious that caused the nations to tremble, before that happened, the people doubted and feared. They didn't know what would become of them, and certainly everyone, maybe down to just shy of Moses, thought that this was going to be their last living day. But the Lord intervened, and as the wind blew all night, and the sea stood in two heaps, and Moses, by God's hand, led the people across, when they reached the other side, they sang a new song. This redemptive occasion warranted a new song, an anthem of God's power, an anthem of God's providence, His protection, His loving kindness, and His prayer, and His loving kindness, and His care. And so at this time, David relates his own exodus to something like the exodus of God's people. Out of sin, onto the rock, is worthy of a new song. He puts a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And just like the Israelites and those around, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David also in this section of past tense has been so moved by this experience that he publishes his salvation He makes it known, obviously, in songs and other ways, in his actions, in the way that he leads his life, in his lifestyle, if you will, and the direction and the turning of his life towards the Lord. He says in verse 4, in wisdom literature style, reminding us of Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds. 
and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. And notice the end of verse 5, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Perhaps this question ought to jump off the page as we seek to apply David's, uh, the state of his soul in light of the truth to our own souls in light of the truth. How obvious is your salvation? Let me ask you again. How obvious is your salvation? Is there enough evidence attending your worshipful lifestyle, your following the Lord that others see and fear and put their trust in the Lord? We'll ask a few more questions along these lines later. But certainly the salvation of David was obvious, not just to him, but to others. Because he freely gave himself to the Lord in worship, praise, and obedience as represented in this song. And he freely turned from the things that would distract, distort, and hamper his own witness as to the Lord's wondrous deeds and thoughts towards him. And finally, in this past tense, resurrection from depravity, as we see the Lord establishing and growing David in maturity, we find that this is a salvation that's not just progressive, incremental, and showing itself as such through the sanctification of his own heart. We also find he's employed this imagery. We find he's, uh, he's jealous to publish this salvation. But we also find that this salvation must be guarded as well as proclaimed. He says again, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And David is so moved and so values the experience that he has had with the Lord, the truth that has been revealed to his own heart. He so treasures what God has recorded for him, written down emphatically in the law, and etched upon the tables of his heart, that he refuses to turn to the proud and go astray after a lie. This word proud, I'm told in the Hebrew, is a unique word and I think only occurs in one other place in the Psalms. And in that other Psalm, it's translated Rahab and it's a negative term and it seems to indicate a pagan alternative or idolatry, maybe even like a popular notion. So what does turning to the proud look like? It's also a word associated with Egypt. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. Again, the picture of of Exodus is in mind. At every point of trial, stress, confusion, despair, discouragement, and disillusionment in the Exodus from Egypt to Canaan, what was the proclivity of the people? Well, it was to turn back to the proud. The safety, the security, and even if it meant slavery, of Egypt. The physical provision of the leeks and the onions, even if it meant being under their false gods. We find more safety and we find more familiarity in the proud, the pagan alternative, in the idolatry, in the spirit of the age, in the zeitgeist of the hour, in the popular notions of culture. David was wise to guard his own salvation against the tendency to go apostate in that regard. David was wise to stay close to the Word. We find this in his other Psalms. I have made your law my meditation day and night. Someone who makes the Lord's Word and law his meditation day and night is so trained and that sword is so honed in his hand 
that he can discern and decipher when he might be led astray after a lie. I wonder if those of us in our culture are so trained and so disciplined by the word and law of God. Has it been our meditation day and night? Is the sword of the Spirit so honed and our grasp that we can discern asunder between that which sounds good and that which is the rock-solid truth of Jesus Christ? We've been preaching through Matthew, and you'll remember the warnings against the Pharisees and listening to the same that Jesus offered the people. One of the warnings that Jesus gave is, beware of something of the Pharisees. He didn't say beware of their influence, their power, their prestige. He said beware of the leaven. What is that picture there? A little poison, a little lie that corrupts the whole mass. So, Have you ever heard it said, well, I listened to this idea, that speaker, this uh, uh, public forum, or that TV preacher. And you know, there's a few things that are pretty questionable. But you know what? I get a lot out of it. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. Those kinds of things. I would just have us turn our attention to God's word and heed the admonition of the, of, of the Lord, of glory, who would tell us, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And also of David when he writes, do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. The message here in this scripture is, though the Lord has pulled us and set us on a rock, His ordained means of us staying there is to jealously guard the truth of our own heart against the popular notions, the pagan alternatives, the idolatry, the good-sounding, sugar-coated, candy messages of today that are more self-centered than Christ-centered, that are more self-exalting than God-glorifying. David and the whole of Scripture would have us turn away from the proud. Do not go astray after a lie, but instead stand on Jesus Christ. And remember that we were depraved and lost in the miry, mucky, bog condition of our own heart. And without Him pulling our feet from that place and setting them on a rock, our condition is indeed hopeless. May we never flirt with the edge of the bog again. May we never find ourselves, like in Pilgrim's Progress, regressing to the slough of despond. May we stay firmly established and rooted in the inarguable, unadulterated Word of God. And this is the message here. The loveliness of salvation is underscored in multiple tenses. The loveliness of salvation is underscored in David's own testimony, what God has done for him. And he considers the lo- his salvation so lovely, so valuable, that he is jealous to guard it from any imposter. And so we are exhorted and encouraged from these pages today. Loveliness of salvation underscores, secondly, in prophetic perfect tense, the once-for-all decree. Let me explain to you again a little bit more what I mean by this unique tense. What are the decrees of God? First, well, the decrees of God, as the Catechism says, are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby, for His own glory, He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. I'm not quoting Scripture, but I'm quoting ideas that were taken from Scripture in the Catechism. Now, what Scriptures are referenced there? Well, Ephesians 1 certainly comes to mind. But the whole of Scripture, does it not? God is powerful, and in the heavens He does whatever He pleases. And the sovereign decree of the Lord is the ruling authority in every age, in every era, over your life, mine, indeed, the course of nations and all of history. 
So the decrees of God are so established in the heart and mind of God that when the prophets speak of them, they often speak, even though they haven't taken fruition yet, fulfillment yet in time, in the past tense. So when the prophets speak of old, when the voice of the Spirit rings from the pages of Scripture, as surely as complete and sure in the mind of God as the truths that He has declared and the decrees of His own mind are, they are just as sure in His mind as they are fulfilled in time. We find something of this prophetic perfect tense right here. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering... And sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will. O my God, your law is written, is within my heart. And you see that there is an emphatic, established, past tense, fulfilled tone here. Yet this was written ages before Christ would come. But the writer of Hebrews tells us clearly, this is speaking of Christ. Speaking of Christ, if you will, in the prophetic perfect tense, because Christ was God's sacrifice once and for all. And Christ was decreed to come, to suffer, to die, to rise again, and to ascend at the right hand of the Father before time even began. As we (coughs) consider this this morning, I would also have you see that not only is the clarity and confidence of the future of the Messiah established in the tone of what David declares, but also we see the complete and total and comprehensive atoning nature of Christ's work. Notice there are four references to sacrifice here in just verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. So there's a sacrifice and an offering, but you have given me an open ear, And then again, the next phrase, burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. The picture here in poetic form is for individual Hebrew references to different sacrifices in the Old Covenant order. And as you read back through those books of Leviticus and otherwise, you'll remember that there was burnt offerings and wave offerings, drain offerings, and so on, offering upon offering. And here there's four represented to give us the clarity and truth that in Christ, every single sacrifice is full and finally, fully and finally represented. Christ is the complete sacrifice. Christ in His work and scope is prophesied here in His messianic atonement as fulfilling the totality of the law. There is no animal to be slain ever again upon the advent of Christ and His finished work on the cross. There is no grain offering, as it were, to atone for sin or any other kind of mediatorial act uh, that we are commanded to do. Why? Because Christ has done it all. And so it is no surprise that in Hebrews that that is indeed the message. There's also a double fulfillment Here, you might ask yourself, is David speaking of himself or is he speaking of the Christ, of Jesus Christ to come at a later date? Well, usually the answer is yes in the Psalms as David is speaking both of himself and of Christ. There's a variant in the Septuagint to the translation here that is interesting. 
In other words, the Bible that was quoted or the copy of the Bible that was recorded by the author of Hebrews has slightly different wording of verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. If we turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, we see that this is uh, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. This is Hebrews 10 verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. So there you see the difference. In the one rendering, the author speaks of a body that you have prepared for me. And again, Hebrews attaches this to the, in the first person to Christ. Namely, that a body in the incarnation of Christ was prepared for Him. So He came, fully God and fully man, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Yet in Psalm 40, as far as David is concerned, the rendering is something like this, but you have given me an open ear. So how do we reconcile the two? Well, when we see in the Scriptures that oftentimes prophecies have a double fulfillment, perhaps we can understand it this way, that God has so ordained His physical means for spiritual purposes that from David's perspective, from his point of view, he highlights the aspect or an aspect of the physical that lends itself to receiving. So from David's perspective, you have given me an open ear Uh, implied to receive the truth and to hear your word. Yet from the Messiah's perspective, the secondary and the double fulfillment, and greater still, if you will, from Christ's perspective, there's an aspect of the physical that lends itself to offering. God had prepared David to hear the word of God. He had given him ears to hear. But God had prepared a body for his son, to be the sacrifice for David's sins. There's other parallels in Hebrews, and they line up so beautifully. Let me briefly read this section, and then read the Hebrews section, without going into it in too much detail, but just to give you a sense of what's therein contained. Again, Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness, from the great congregation. But as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And then again, turning over to Hebrews 10, where two of these verses are cited, or three perhaps, and then continuing in the context we read in Hebrews 10:5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, and again, this is in the words of Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. 
This, mind you, was the law that David was under then. And this then becomes so spectacular because David, in the atonement time machine, if you will, speaks of a day when the sacrifices of the old covenant would be transcended in Christ. You have not desired these sacrifices. So what will substitute? What will be sufficient in its stead? And the author of Hebrews reminds us that it is Christ and Christ alone. He says in verse 9, He, Christ, abolishes the first order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, twelve, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And there again, you see that parallel, four offerings mentioned, and here a single offering mentioned Christ. We continue verse 15, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, Jeremiah 31, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then again, back and moving back and forth, it says in Psalm 40, verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David is prophesying of the day where the law will be etched upon the stone of the heart, where God will reach in, with his own finger as he did on the stones of Sinai, and write upon the tables of your heart, my heart, if you are in Christ today, his laws, that they might be in our heart and in our mind. Then he adds, verse 17 again in Hebrews 10, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened us through (coughs) the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful And let us consider how to stir one another up, one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we see the event, the occasion that warranted the worship in Hebrews chapter 10. The awareness of the church of the sufficiency and the superiority of Christ as the once for all sacrifice to cleanse them free from sin, and so they find now their safety and identity in Him, and therefore with His body. So they rush to the congregation, to the gathered assembly, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And we turn back here and we see that David had premonition of these very things by the Spirit of God. Verse 9, I've told you the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Here prophetically the occasion was that God would come in the future as Messiah. I desire to do your will. Oh my God, your law is written within my heart. And at that time, you'd write his law on our heart. And so this occasion of worshipful expectation for what God would, would do in history warrants a great worship service. David says, in the great congregation, behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, 
He says later, I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation in verse 10. And then (laughs) he says in verse 11, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Just as the author of Hebrews says, Don't neglect the assembly, that is the congregation of yourselves together. Stir one another up to love and good works. Encourage one another daily and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in the prophetic perfect tense, based on the once for all decree, David writes with an unprecedented confidence, one that his mere humanity could not afford him. It is the breath and inspiration of the Holy Spirit moving his pen to offer such glorious odes in the time machine of the Spirit that gives us this picture of the future confidence, joy, and worship that the advent of the Messiah would bring. Finally, this morning, under the heading, the loveliness of salvation, underscored in multiple tenses, we have the present tense. That is, the trials and distress of the present and of the future. Though David writes with this kind of hope and expectation, he also writes as one under anguish. (coughs) This is often the case in verse 12 we read, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. What to expect in our own circumstance and situation? Well, David has given us the honeymoon stage by way of testimony of his own experience with the Lord in the beginning of this psalm. But if you have been in the Lord any length of time, I'm sure you can relate to David that there comes a time of testing after the seed is sown. And to borrow the imagery of the parable of the sower, we find only through time, sometimes shorter time than others, what is the condition, the soil of our soul. Some of the seeds sprout and produce fruit immediately, or at least appear that they will, (laughs) but the soil is stony underneath. Because they have no, no root, they wither and die. Other seeds appear healthy for a time, but there's others growing next to them, and so they are choked by the thorns. And there are some seeds in the final category, as you recall, that produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. But David and the rest of the Scriptures help us understand that that doesn't mean that our soil has no challenges. There are those seeds who grow, as another parable describes, also next to tares. But by God's providence, in His grace, the tares do not choke them out. Later the tares are gathered and bundled and burned in everlasting fire, but the wheat is gathered in storehouses. And so David finds himself in a circumstance well described by these parables. There are evils encompassing him beyond number. 
But notice the nature of the evil. It's not just what's on the outside, but also what is within. Verse 12, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. David recognizes that it is a battle to the death with his own sin, that he will go through life encountering iniquity within and enemies without. It says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. So we can expect in some times and various ways, within and without, in our own Christian life, suffocating circumstances that would otherwise choke out the seed inside of us. But by the grace of God, He works in and through you and me to mortify sin. That great work, the mortification of sin, the dying to our flesh daily that John Owen speaks of, the crucifixion of the old man, and then following the Holy Spirit's leading. Saturating ourselves in the Word is the calling of a believer. And the loveliness of salvation is underscored in that in our present tense, in our trials and our circumstances, God has made a way to fortify us in our resolve against the enemies without and to mortify within the sins that easily beset and entangle us. So be about this duty, believer. Be about the mortification of sin and the fortification of your resolve. As David prays through and worships through this song, we find that even prays for the enemies of the Messiah to be destroyed if they do not repent. There are those who will persecute him, those who will mock him in this language. Aha, aha, is referred to in the Psalms on several other occasions. And each, in each case, the context is the mockers and the scoffers. Those who say, you've given your life to this worthless cause of Christ. You've invested your time and precious treasure and energy in something that just is a crutch for the weak man, your faith and so on. What an idiot. I'm going to spend my time and my passions pursuing my own ends in this life. And that spirit that rails in this day and age against the committed Christian who's willing to sacrifice and although they be few and far between, lay down his cross, I'm sorry, take up his cross, lay down his life and follow Christ. We're surrounded by a culture who mocks that very notion by saying, aha, aha. But unless they repent, they are enemies of the Messiah. And if there are those who mock those who are faithful to Christ, they can find good company at Calvary itself. The ones that say, if you be the Son of Man, step down from the cross, save yourself. So those voices, they were no stranger to David in his time in this passage that we're reading today. And indeed, the disciples faced persecuting forces today and are when in the New Testament, and we certainly face them today. But let us pray that the Lord would fortify us against them, that in best case scenario, we might preach the gospel to them that they might repent and turn to Him. And so we see the loveliness of our salvation underscored in sufficient armaments for this present tense that we live in. We see the loveliness of salvation underscored in the prophetic declaration through all of Scripture that the decrees of God marched forward like an unalterable, beautiful, unfolding, revelatory picture of His purpose and decree for all history and mankind. We see the loveliness of our salvation pictured in the very personal testimony of resurrection from the depravity and miry clay of our own sin. And so, as we close this morning in application, 
Let us ask ourselves if our affections line up with those that David exhibits. Reading again the final two verses. At the close of this (coughs) meditation, David says, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Those who seek the Lord have a proportional response in their own heart and attitude. They overflow with, overflow with spontaneous rejoicing and gladness. They say continually with their lives and with their profession, Great is the Lord. They make their chief end the glory of God. In verse 17, David admits that he is not qualified for this call, but nevertheless, what more can he do upon considering so great and lovely a salvation? He says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought after me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Do you love your salvation? Perhaps you haven't met Jesus Christ in a real, personal way. Perhaps you've never come to the cross with brokenness. If that question is utterly foreign to you, do you love your salvation? You should ask yourself if you have come to the cross in the first place. If you have, and although we wander and grow weak in our confession, but if you have come to the cross and can relate to David when he says, he's rescued me from a pit of destruction and a miry bog, then the calling of Psalm 40 is to take those realizations and meditations and translate them into faithfulness and worship. Do you realize this morning, do we realize that God has moved heaven and earth and time to purchase your very soul at the cost of His Son's shed blood? Do you marvel that you, that we retain in Christ and in the closed canon, do you marvel that we retain a message of the revelation of Christ that ancient hearts longed for? Now David prophesied of a Messiah who was to come, but there's no way he could quote Hebrews 10 in full. The author of Hebrews could quote in full Psalm chapter 40. But we, if we set our meditations upon them and commit them to memory, we can commit, we can commit to memory both passages. We retain a revelation in Christ that ancient hearts like David's longed for. You can bet your life that if David had the complete canon, he would spend more hours than I do going over with a fine-toothed comb of study and worship, every written word. Do we, believers, burst forth in songs of praise, considering the glory of our estate in Christ? In your family worship times, do you offer hymns before the Lord? Out of conviction, it's something that we are trying to implement in our own home, singing some of the song, psalms. After, our, what are they, after all, what are they for? Do we burst forth in songs of praise, Can't help but whistle or hum a tune or even burst forth while we're mowing the lawn with an ode of glory to the Lord for our estate in Christ. And again, do we obviously display our salvation for the benefit of God's glory to all who look on? Is your salvation obvious to others? And do we remember our previous condition, the miry clay and the muck of our sin? 
such that we don't lose that breathless state of gratitude upon salvation of our souls. And finally, do we say with the psalmist, continually, great is the Lord. Let us consider the psalm an admonition this morning to quicken and equip us for a greater expression of glory, praise, and faithfulness to Him because of what He has done for us. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that these words, Father, would reach within our heart, a heart that is easily mired, Lord, in the cares, in the schedules, in the wayward affections, and in the general lack, Lord Jesus, of love for the things that are beautifully ours in Christ. I pray that we might find, Lord, if there's any areas of like this in our own hearts, repentance forthcoming. That the altar here in this meeting this morning would be strewn with besetting sins, distractions, wayward thinking, or lackadaisical behavior, and maybe even our old sinful life, only that we might gain Christ. I pray that you would help us to feel the inspiration that moved your servant David to write these words in our own souls. And may we gather together in the congregation, in the assembly next week with more fervor and more testimonies to share among ourselves of the glory and worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I just want to thank you guys for your prayers. It seems sort of a trivial matter now, but um, yesterday I couldn't have preached. And I was just struggling with shortness of breath and kind of doubled over for a number of hours. And so just thank you for those that prayed in morning prayer, lifted me up, and I just give God the glory for letting me get through this sermon, just dealing with some kind of seasonal allergy thing. But I couldn't help but thinking yesterday that God gives us every single breath. And there were some times when I was struggling for each breath and counting every one. And it just was a reminder to me of how much I take for granted. Every five seconds or so, I need one of those. How easy it is to forget that. So, But thank you. It was a good, good reminder for me. And I just thank the body for coming in prayer. Gene prayed for me last night, my family. And Rudy came up to me this morning and said, asked me how I was doing. He said that he and his family prayed for me in family worship last night. So thank you guys. It's just awesome. And appreciate your time to share a personal moment like that. Um, also, just to stay um, kind of up to speed on what's up for the next uh, couple of weeks, we're back.